You're listening to The Reopening, a podcast that asks, how will America work through the COVID-19 pandemic? How will we innovate? And how will it change our global economy? Each week, we invite top business leaders to share their insights on the road to economic revival here at home and around the world. Today, we are joined by Oscar Munoz, Executive Chairman of United Airlines. Oscar has served on United's Board of Directors since 2004 and was named Chief Executive Officer in 2015. We will talk with Oscar about managing through the industry's sudden decline and gradual recovery, on the future of commercial aviation, and his unique perspective on race relations in America. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Scott Miller. And this is The Reopening. Oscar Munoz, thank you so much for joining us. U.S. Airlines carried 3 million passengers last April. That's a staggering 96% decline from April in 2019. The Transportation Department said today, Wednesday, June 10th. Total airline passengers were the lowest since 1974 when the government began collecting monthly data. So your industry is really in a sea change here due to COVID-19. Can you tell us what's been going through your mind and the mind of your colleagues? You know, this started early for us at United. We are probably the first industry to feel the effects of this virus and probably the last to feel the benefit of the recovery. Because back in early March, when we saw the outbreaks in both Korea and in Italy, uh, what we saw immediately, and what we reported into one of my visits to the White House was overnight, our load factors, our bookings dropped to almost zero the day after those outbreaks. So all the flights that were headed to Italy after that day, all the people that were scheduled to fly, all of a sudden, everybody dropped off. So we saw that immediate impact. And we quickly extrapolated that sort of information to the U.S. because it hadn't even come close to the U.S. But again, Italy's a little bit closer to home for us. And so we began to anticipate um, the uh, potential impact and immediately went into cost management, into managing our routes, to working on our aircraft as to how mitigate where it's flying. And then importantly, to get some liquidity, knowing that this concept that we now use fairly frequently of cash burn was something we would have to manage. So the initial thoughts were, this could be very serious. And let's start assessing this from a potential for the worst case, and then hope for the best. And so that was our initial thought. I mean, but it is severe. Airlines carried 3 million in April. In 2019, in April, it was 76.1 million passengers U.S. carriers carried. So how do you think about your future? Well, this is unfortunately happened before, not to the magnitude that it's happened this, to put it in context, 9-11, which some of your listeners will remember, was a pretty significant event. We lost 40 to 50% of our revenue for about two, two and a half months. We lost nearly 100% of our revenue for the last three or four months. And as we see the uptick and you read and hear of a resurgence of air travel to some degree, we've gone at United from sort of but on a daily basis, roughly 600,000 customers. And we were at one point in time carrying eight to 10,000 per day just a few weeks ago. That's jumped up to 50. So the number of going from 10 to 50 is this wonderful celebratory moment. But if you put that 50 in contents with the 600, we are still a long way to go. It is our belief that until the vaccine or the relative therapeutics and other instruments that make us feel more comfortable and safe, it is important for us how to address this is 
to make you, the flying public, feel as safe as possible. And we can talk about all the specifics of that, but you have to feel safe. And importantly, the rest of the world has to open up to some degree. I think we've used the example of, of Disney, right? People aren't gonna travel to Orlando to go to Disney if Disney's not open. So I don't care how safe my aircraft is, right? It's a holistic sort of world of view of the economy that I urge a lot of our business leaders to think of. Because you know, knowledge workers can stay home and work for a long period of time. I and a lot of industry in America, right? You can't fly without us physically being at the airport to assist you along. So the way we see it, it'll be slow, it'll be gradual, it'll start with leisure, it'll start with certain domestic markets. Inevitably, it goes to global, and the business uh, the, the business customers are starting to uh, sort of get a sense that they want to fly. So there's a survivability factor that just says. How long can we hang on? How long can we continue to burn cash with relatively little revenue while still providing a safe and reliable service to you, the flying customer? I want to bring in frequent flyer Scott Miller here. Yes, no longer so frequent, let me tell you that. But, you know, I used to, I traveled on business for many years. And the business traveler was, uh, of course, core business for, for many airlines, including United. One of the things that many executives have learned in this uh, period of office closures and uh, stay-at-home orders is that there's pretty decent productivity from uh, workers who don't commute to their offices or uh, travel much. And so we're doing this uh, via electronic media now. What's your expectation for business travel? There are some things that you can do over Zoom. There's some things you can't. How does that look out in the future from your seat in United? It's easy to say, based upon our history, that this topic comes up all the time. Sure. 9-11, previous pandemics, there's always been, oh my God, the world's going to change. No one's going to work anywhere but their home. And then inevitably we get back to that. Uh, the way I think about it is, well, Zoom and Teams and all the other uh, WebEx, all, all, all the other vehicles that have proven to be important and productive because we need to. Fundamentally, as human beings, we firmly believe, and it's not an industry-specific sort of feeling, human-to-human -human interactions and building of relationships have always happened on a one-to-one -one basis. So that travel will begin as it's safer to do so. And so we fundamentally feel it'll return. We are already beginning to see from our large corporate customers, the large consulting firms specifically, are already beginning to get back into the process of working because we've made clear again that our planes are safe, our airports are getting safer, and again, there's something on the other end for them to do. And so that in-person interaction is something that's really, I think, for most of us, part of our career and work life. And I think that will resume. And it will resume in its own course. And we're not pushing it to do any earlier, but uh, we do feel it will return. Well, we are, at our essence, social creatures. And so my instincts are you're absolutely right about that. Now, I've always felt when I was traveling a lot that the airplane was the cleanest place I encountered at the entire trip. Uh, I know you're taking extra steps to assure passengers that their health is cared for as well as their air safety. Can you talk about United's initiatives there? It is critical that we make you feel, and we've always used that word feel in our customer service orientation, feel good about flying and that it's safe and all that. So you've read about everybody wearing masks. At United specifically, we do this hydrostatic cleaning that wipes down every single aircraft before anyone gets out there. Importantly, air quality is a key thing. There is very few places on this planet that you can go to that the air is pure and more sort of recycled and clean than inside an aircraft. These HEPA great air filters, I think it's like 99.7% of the airborne particles that are removed. And then if you're wearing a mask on top of that, it's almost physically impossible to sort of 
quote, catch anything with regard to the air. And we recycle that air every four to five minutes. And again, that is not a place safe for all our services being done in that sort of a touchless way. Airports are increasingly, we just announced our touchless kiosk for baggage. All of those different things are meant to ensure that the aircraft is indeed safe. And so that's the efforts that we've been putting through. Jim McNerney of Boeing told us the exact same thing about the purity of the air. And I know that United has had groundbreaking partnerships with the Cleveland Clinic. And today you even announced that United will require passengers to affirm that they themselves are healthy before they fly United. And that includes a checklist of, I think it's 14 different things that they'll have to do before they come on the airplane, including saying they don't have a cough, they don't have a fever, they haven't been exposed to anybody with COVID in the last 21 days, they haven't been diagnosed with COVID in the last 21 days, they'll have to wear face masks and so forth. How will you get us passengers to follow those rules? I think that the trick in, in our world has always been how to gently and in a hospitable way and warm way uh, get you to adhere to specific and proven safety practices. Uh, the tightening of a seatbelt is probably a good example. People don't like to do that. We make yeah. you do that. We make you do that gently, but we make you do that. I think in this term, new normal, which we don't like, I think there'll be lots of things. There'll be temperature checks, there'll be those surveys. And I think they're gonna happen in many parts of our lives, not just at the airport, not just when you're going to this. I think it's gonna happen in a lot of period of time. What I've seen as I've flown around, there's been 99% of the folks sort of acknowledge and adhere to the facts and I think it's important for everyone. There's always gonna be a few folks that don't wanna do something. I've seen a little social pressure from other customers who just look at someone and just say, look at them, it's like, really? Are you really gonna be a problem here? Because everybody's doing this. So there's a level of humanity and caring for each other that we are gonna count on, not as an airline, but as a nation and as a global state that we are all gonna take care of each other. Because, you know, for instance, wearing a mask isn't about you, it's about protecting others from you. And I think as people begin to understand that and move forward. But having said that, you know what, it, it, there's difference. Every state is opening in different levels. We're seeing a resurgence of cases. I fear that we are getting a little lax in accepting that this thing, you know, we've had new things in, on the news cycle that have caught our attention. This thing's still an issue, right? I mean, we're hearing about Maricopa County in Arizona. We're hearing about you know, Harris County in Texas, you know, states that opened up a bit early. I hope we don't have to get to a point where we have this resurgence in a significant way that gets us back and, and hunkered down. But all of those activities, all those noises, I think will get people to understand that it's still critical to take care of yourself and to take care of others. It's really an important reminder that this is a novel virus, okay? We don't know that much about it yet. We learn things every day, and I, I think the science will ultimately get us where we need to get. I've seen my neighbors work very hard to protect there are other neighbors as well as themselves. So I think your instincts are right there. And we just have to be reminded in, in a way that, that this is really about doing the right thing for others. I, for years, went to work whether I felt good or not. I think differently about that now. I don't think I'd be around people if I weren't feeling well. So I think we're going to be changed for a while. You're absolutely right. You, you will see that for a bit of time. And importantly, there's a degree of this lack of awareness, this insidious nature of this virus that we don't know so much about. One of the concerns that at least I've spoken about a lot is that there's so much different information from so many different sources and there's different levels of human risk awareness, right? Some are more risk averse, some are like, hey, fatalistic and just you, know, you have those opposites. 
And we all read things that support, you know, the old confirmation bias, where it's yes. like, oh, look, I got this piece of paper and it says, you don't have to do this and I'm not. And I fall into the same as all of us. I'm a heart transplant patient. And so my immune system is incredibly suppressed. There was early, early research that maybe that suppression and therefore stability of my immune system with the drugs that I take were actually sort of blockers and not, they didn't have good reception for this virus. It was protective in some way, yes. It's protective in some way. So someone like me goes, yay. The inner part of me said, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And sure enough, you wait a few weeks and there's more. And so, you know, in limited amounts. And so I think all of us, it is so critically important to get information, especially when it differs from your viewpoint, listen to the other side. Go look at the facts, the data, the figures, the math behind it. Leon Ferguson, a historian, put together a document just a few weeks ago where he took almost every subject matter in, in, the, in the virus and put all the different information, just the information. No dialogue, no necessarily any opinion. It's like, here's how every country is doing. Here's how African-Americans versus Latinos versus whites. And, so, and when you read through that, it's an exhaustive, long read. And the one key thing that I took away from that, 63% of Republicans feel that the whole virus thing is exaggerated. These aren't political statements, by the way. It's just the facts. Sure. And an equal number of Democrats feel that not enough is being done. And of course, because of the places that we go for information tends to support both those views, we just get deeper and deeper entrenched. Now, it's impossible to both be exaggerated and not doing enough, right? We know that. So the truth is clearly in the middle somewhere. And how do we as individuals get to that truth without getting that confirmation bias away? So I urge all of us to get those facts because walking around with definitive voice saying, well, you don't have to worry about it because of this. Temperature checking on aircraft. And it's like, temperature check, is it a real designate? It makes people feel better. We should right. take people's temperature. What does it do? What are people well, it forces you to stop, think, and ask, and ask those questions, and it's meaningful. So we'll continue to clean and do all the things that we need to do, knowing that people feel differently about it. Oscar, a lot of us who travel, you said it, you know, it's about making people feel comfortable. And I think a lot of us who have cooled down from traveling during COVID have been thinking, well, this is a chance for airlines to reimagine themselves and, and make it a much more pleasant experience for everybody who flies. And that might include removing seats, or it may include making seats further apart, or it may include things that we haven't even thought about yet. Are you and your colleagues reimagining air travel in a way that would distance people, that would make people feel more comfortable about flying, give people more incentive to get back on the planes? The current incentive, by the way, if anybody's checked prices recently, especially upcoming in July, you can kind of fly anywhere you want in the U.S. for very little dollars. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Not a long-term uh, uh, good economic model. The important part of, of this, and it's always a treacherous point because it does come down to economics. We want to make you safe. We want to make sure you're safe. And everywhere that we, we can, distancing, uh, touchless kiosks, we are exploring all those things. And you'll see that increasingly. Uh, TSA is working on these things, thermal image, all sorts of different things. They're going to make the process easier and not as touch with another human. So we'll do that. The fact of the matter is that when you're in an enclosed tube, it's called an aircraft, it is physically impossible to distance in that same manner, which is why we over-index on the HEPA air filters, the hydrostatic cleaning, the gloves, the mask, and all that, which will continue. That's an important part of that. 
the economics of removing seats or taking people out, it's just impossible to fly those aircraft with very few people. If we could do that, we would have done that for a long, long period of time. And so the reimagining that internal part is more about safety and ensuring that you understand how safe it is. But as far as removing seats, it's 11 foot across two in a narrow body. I mean, you can't get six feet. You can reduce the number of people that, that are on the flights, and we're trying to do that right now. But as demand continues, I think people are less and less risk. My proof point for that is at United, rather than blocking or removing middle seats or anything, we let you know when your flight that you're about to be on is more than 70% full. That's the demarcation point where there's probably some people sitting in middle seats. If you are uncomfortable, we will rebook you onto another flight that's infinitely safe. And by the way, only 6% of our flights right now have over 70% of people. So very small fraction of flights are that full. We allow you to opt out and make another choice for another aircraft, simple. The proof point is that only like close to 2% of the people since we started this a month ago have opted out for that change. Air travel has and always will be a function of, I need to get from here to there at this time frame. And golly, you have a nice price on top of that. That's where I want to go. That's always been the fundamental sort of nature of our business. And it's being proven by the solution that we've come up. So I think it's going to get safer, and which is why we say until a vaccine comes to play where people are just going to feel safer, I think the aircraft interior is going to stay roughly the same. Well, there's an important element of what you're doing is you're giving the consumer the choice. Being told to do something versus having the choice is a huge difference in customer relations. So it sounds to me like you're on the right track. You know, the question was about reimagining thing. Uh, just taking seats out is not overly imaginative and not economically viable. Allowing people to make choices and do the, and do the things that we're suggesting. Again, and this is all bridging the gap because I think once the vaccine comes in, you'll see that. And you, you see the, the flights going out. Some of the, the low-cost airlines are flying completely full because they're offering really cheap seats. So again, this is not a crass commercial for us or capitalist view, uh, it's fundamental human dynamics. I want to yeah. get point A to point B at a cheap price and I'm, I'm going to go. And no. have that back to that risk tolerance that people have or don't have. The government had to bail you guys out. And with good reason, you know, this is one of those catastrophic things that happened. Act of God, you know, you couldn't have been prepared for this. Nobody could have been prepared for this. But now people are saying, well, you know, maybe the government might have a role in how you do your business. Do you think the government's going to be involved in your business going forward? Excuse my defensiveness. As an individual, as an industry, the, the term bailout has a connotation where we were doing something wrong. Uh, the banking system, the, the automotive industry were bailed out. Right. Um, United had the strongest balance sheet it's had in its history. Our trajectory and growth pattern, our stock had doubled over the course of the time that I've been CEO, and the industry writ large was in a great situation. Our balance sheet had enough money to, in essence, manage through a black swan event like 9-11. That's how much money we had. This is exponentially worse. Right. And so I think that's the point that we were able to prove as industry leaders with our governmental leaders that it wasn't a bailout. We're an essential part of the economy and markets. Mm -hmm. That's how people get to work. And in essence, this thing was no fault of our own. And so given us a bridge, which is what this grant program was about, is allowed us some time to go out and gain our own liquidity. All the industries have been out trying to get their own debt. There's a second wave of, of loans that can come from the government. 
which do come with some stipulations. But at this point in time, and I got to give Stephen Mnuchin, our Treasury Secretary, a lot of credit for this, this hasn't been about let's take over your business or let's manage your business. The government has to get a return on its investment with you and they'll manage through that. And I think uh, both sides of the aisle have put their stipulations on these things, but eminently they're all manageable. And we as an industry, and I can speak for all of us, are grateful that it's there. And again, the stipulations, while impactful, they're not significant. And, and nobody's talking about running the airlines. That's good to know. Yeah, absolutely. Because we like you the way you run it. Yeah, we like the businessmen to run their businesses, not the government to run their businesses. And if you look at this one way, you were doing just fine until the government told you you couldn't fly. <laughs> so th this, this all makes sense. Now, the government's still involved in a lot of the regulatory decisions about where you can fly. And that's both the United States and internationally. What's the regulatory outlook look like as different places open at different times, as there are different levels of requirements on, in all the places that you fly? It's a great question, and I, I think it's helpful to understand that. There's not much regulatory sort of input with regards to the domestic flying. I think one of the stipulations of the CARES Act that we had to maintain service to all of the places that we flew so we didn't cut anybody off. And we've been able to work through that just fine, and DOT has been terrific at that. The international space is what's a concern. There's just so many levels of complexity. If you think about some of our social media debates with the country of China and our country at the mm. highest levels, doesn't always make for good relations necessarily. And so what we worry about as international travel opens is that we begin to not have a patchwork of regulatory issue in every country we fly into. We need a bit of a harmonization. And there's an international sort of unit called IATA, I-A-T-A, which I'm part of, and we are trying to manage this on a worldwide basis. How do we get every country to not have its own regulatory sort of concerns and issues and how we can harmonize everyone so that we indeed can begin to fly internationally? Because a lot of the restrictions, right? London Heathrow is a perfect example. You got a 14-day quarantine. Not a lot of people are going to go there and sit in a hotel for 14 days, do their business, only to come back and be quarantined again. So we are really pushing for a template of sorts that fits everybody's concerns, but it's going to be a while, right? Countries are opening up, third world countries, right? I mean, they just don't have, from our perspective anyway, the economic wherewithal to effectively weather long-term economic impacts of being shut down. So they're going to open up earlier than they should. And what's the ramifications of that? So we don't want to get involved in forcing any conversation or any flights, but we are going to stipulate and work through, hopefully, a more harmonized approach to begin international flying. I want to ask you something that I know is close to your heart and definitely close to mine and Scott's as well. You were one of the few Latino CEOs. And last time I checked, there were four African-American CEOs in the Fortune 500. We're having a massive discussion about race in America right now. How do you think we can get more diversity into corporate America at the highest levels? Oh, gosh. That is such a, uh, such a loaded question, right? Because we've tried so much for so long. It's feeling like this is an inflection point in American history. And that sounds like a really broad, dramatic statement. But as I see the hurt and the anger and the despair in the faces that we see on TV, the people that we know, it's just agonizing to see. And it really has bubbled to a point where bit inspiring because it nurtured some real meaningful debate. And more importantly, hopefully it's going to foster change, real change. And I know this is the words that everybody is seeing, but I'm seeing more corporate leaders speak up. 
And the mantra, if you will, of this is that this time it's different. And I sure hope to God it is because it has to be. And our response as corporate leaders has to be as well different because the normal things that we've been doing, which are important issues of diversity and resource groups and all the training and education and bias and everything we'll do, we'll start to do this. But, you know, what started this particular event was clear, right? Minneapolis was clear and it was, it was certainly tragic. But African-Americans in this country don't just feel locked in by sort of this vicious cycle of criminal justice system that doesn't favor them. They also feel, and this is importantly where we as business leaders can, they feel locked out of any opportunity to do anything Mm -hmm. on this virtuous cycle that comes from economic opportunity. And so in addition to, you know, the police reform that I think, you know, is going to take its toll, those of us who lead so many people and manage with so many employees have to do something more. And and the way I think about it, and this is my opinion, and there's so many things, so many small businesses in the minority community are unbanked. So how do we allow capital for them to do something? And you're seeing that the large banks have come out strong. They're going to allocate decent resources. But what is it that you individually can do? And so there's a couple of thoughts that at least I have. Uh, one of the things that I saw growing up in Southern California and East LA is I remember as a young child, the traditional pillars that hold up and fortify communities, right? Whether it's schools or libraries or you know, your church, your parks, your swimming pool. Over time, as I went back to the neighborhood to visit, I saw all of those decimated because we were building roads or there was a new condo complex, right? The the banked community was coming in and building things and taking out all those resources where people of the same money. So again, those pillars are gone. How do we reinforce? How do we give? How do we contribute? How do we assist people in our neighborhoods and all of us live in neighborhoods where there are sections that have been decimated of those particular places, those pillars, as I call them. Uh, And how do we go and help in that regard is one idea. And then, and this is probably the strongest point for me is we need not the four or the one or two of Latinx people like me, we need our allies. And the women's movement has had this for a long time and the importance of allies because a person of color or a woman or someone talking about a subject, there's still a large bit of the population that looks at someone and what they're saying and where they're from and and sort of nod their head, but to a degree say, you know, I'd expect to hear Oscar Munoz to say about this, to say that. Well, dang it. I mean, we have to change that mindset. And what I'm really enjoying and liking and, and my world and the people I interact with know me, they're beginning to become allies. They're beginning to speak out in terms that are truly meaningful and understanding. We've had this debate about Black Lives Matter and then the counterpart of All Lives Matter, the kneeling in the NFL. And I think uh, one of the more poignant moments was uh, when a football player mentioned something and got a lot of concerns raised back to him. And overnight, he changed his stance. He says, I didn't understand how my statement, as honest and as not meaning to hurt anyone as it was, once I understood why it harmed you know, that community, I had no intention of harming that community. He said, yeah, this is Drew Brees we're talking about. Yeah, this is Drew Brees, right? Yeah. But I just, that's a good example. of, and, and I know in my world and what I do with a lot of my friends that aren't of my persuasion and others, we, we try to sort of education and listening. It's like, here's what, why saying something like that hurts. Here is what thinking that way does because it is different. We all can tell stories. I could sit here and tell you for half an hour stories that have affected me over my growing up. Now, I bolted through it. I pulled myself through and made it work. And people say to me, well, good for you. You did that. 
Well, it doesn't have to be that hard. And when you have allies in the space that understand that and work with you, I've always said in my company, it's proof, not promise. And it's time for all of us business leaders, everything that we do in government. You know, there's a, there's a concept of proof, not how can you help? Whether it's the, the, these pillars that I talked about, whether it's anything you can do, but certainly stopping for a second and truly understanding why certain things hurt someone. It's a really deeply meaningful education. And then you can make your opinion from there. You know, listen, we're not going to change people's mind necessarily, but boy, having, having an understanding. I think a lot of the righteous anger that you see in this movement today stems from a really deep suspicion that nothing's ever going to really change. And that's what drives the emotion. And people say, well, it's just this one thing. It isn't just this one thing. This has been going for the African-American community, right? Centuries. For the Latino community, decades. Everyone has been going through this. And so it's an emotional point for all of us. But where we can really use help is strong allies that understand and push back and we can have a good debate. This time is different and it's up to all of us to make it so. I want to thank you for that comment because there's been a tough couple of weeks for all of us uh, looking for something to do. And I'm grateful for you pointing the way of what I can do. And so thank you. Thank you for that insight. And it's, it's, it's one of the more hopeful things I've, uh, I've heard in a, a little while. So thank you for that. Thank you for your time. You've been very generous with it. Yes. Thank you, Oscar. And uh, I'm ready to get back on an airplane and uh, meet people. So I'm glad you're still in the business. <laughs> it really is an interesting environment out there. People are, are much more uh, courteous. And it's an interesting, somewhat surreal event in, in airports that are somewhat uh, empty. But again, it'll, it'll come back like it always has. And, and our job is just to make you feel and make sure it's safe and feel safe. And then we get back to this country and this planet back uh, to where it used to be. So um, uh, in so many ways. And uh, this discord and race is, is, is yet another topic that, gosh, we can, you know, if we could find a vaccine for that, right? <laughs> Boy, isn't that the truth? Well, thank you again, Oscar. This has been just an invaluable conversation. We really appreciate your time. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening to The Reopening. If you like this episode, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find other podcasts from the Center for Strategic and International Studies at csis.org slash podcasts.